I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles as we come to the preaching of the Word to Psalm 75. Psalm 75, as we continue working our way uh, through the Psalter. Here now, this is the living word of God. This is Psalm 75. To the chief musician, set to Do Not Destroy, a psalm of Asaph, a song. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks, for your wondrous works declare that your name is near. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. Salah. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the land of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray and seek his blessing. Our Lord, we come before you giving you thanks for your word. And we thank you, Lord, for this psalm that you have preserved and given. And we pray that as we consider your truth, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray that you would bless my mind and my mouth, that I might think and speak with clarity this evening. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What are some things that can give us comfort in times of difficulty, in times of darkness, in times of great trial and tribulation? I can remember when I was young, it was always a great comfort to have mom and dad nearby. I can remember at times we would take family road trips back east, either down south to Orlando around Christmas time to visit my aunt and uncle there and cousins, or back to Pittsburgh uh, around Thanksgiving to visit my dad's parents, my grandparents on that side, and aunts and uncles and cousins. And we would always leave, you know, right after my dad got off work. He would get off work, get home, we would have the van packed, and we would all get in 
grab some dinner, and go, and he would drive through the night. And I can remember on one occasion particularly where we headed into a winter storm as we were headed down to Florida in the winter. And I can remember, you know, feeling uh, the ice and the snow building up on the road. I was too scared to really look at what was going on, but I could feel the bumps and everything like that. But there was a measure of comfort knowing that my dad was there and he was carefully driving down the road. It was a dark and kind of scary time, but I remember finding comfort in that. There is comfort when our loved ones are near, our parents are near, especially if if we have here on earth that loving relationship with our parents. Well, this psalm speaks about the nearness of God. The nearness of God. And as we consider this psalm this evening, what I want us to come away with is a measure of comfort knowing that God is nearby. Knowing that he is close at hand. That despite whatever might be going on in our lives, no matter how tumultuous our lives might be, no matter what kind of question marks might be in the near future, that God is near, he is at hand. So, brothers and sisters, find comfort in the wonderful works of God, for they declare his nearness. Now, as we consider the nearness of God, he has given us proof of this nearness. It's in the works that he has done, the wonderful works that he has done. They declare that he is near, and as we consider them, that is where we find our comfort, that he is close. So first of all, looking at the very first verse, the wonders of God declare he is near. This psalm begins, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks For your wondrous works declare that your name is near. As we give thanks to God, this is one of the things that we are given in Scripture to combat um, covetousness, a grumbling attitude, a, a discontentment with life. That is to turn to God in thankfulness. We thank you, O God. We give thanks to you, We give thanks. And the reason here given for the giving of thanks is for the wondrous works that he has done. Now as we consider the wonders of God, it is something that is wondrous, is something that is uh, too difficult, unusual, or miraculous. It's the difficult, miraculous things that God has done. These wondrous works, and they declare that his name is near. As we consider the wondrous works of God and what kind of things do we put into those categories? Well, the first and foremost is the actual creation of all things. He spoke into nothing and he has created the whole universe. The heavens declare the glory of God as Psalm 19 says. They don't speak a word, but their voice goes throughout the whole world declaring That God is God, his divine nature, his eternal attributes. He is God. And this wondrous work of God in creation is a day-to-day reminder that he is there. 
He does exist. And even through his ordinary works of providing for us, we even see there the wonderful truth that he is near. But we also see, have another category of his wondrous works apart from his work of creation, and that is his work of redemption. The wondrous works that God has done as recorded for us in the pages of Scripture and how he delivered his people time and time again as he, in a mighty and powerful way, overcame their enemies. Whether it's the exodus and delivering his people out of Egypt or it's the angel of the Lord uh, slaying the Assyrian army, 180-some thousand soldiers in the night. Uh, Whatever it may be, there are mighty and powerful Ways in which the Lord has delivered his people and given them victory over their enemies. But all of those wondrous things that God has done in redemptive history, what we call redemptive history in the Old Testament, all point to the chief of God's wondrous works, and that is the reconciliation of a sinful humanity with himself, a holy and perfect and righteous God. It is the work of Jesus Christ. This is his crown jewel in chief of most wondrous works that he has done. We consider the incarnation of Christ himself, that he is 100% man, that he is 100% God, both in one person. That he can say to the Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. And he can truthfully say that Abraham saw my day and before Abraham was, I am. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus uses those I am statements time and time again, it is purposefully and masterfully done. To make the connection that he is that angel of the Lord that met with Moses in the burning bush and said, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. He is that angel of the Lord that came down upon Mount Sinai in lightning and thundering and fire and great smoke that drove terror into the hearts of his people. He is that angel of the Lord that gave the law on Mount Sinai. He is the angel of the Lord that was that pillar of cloud and pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness to the promised land. He is the one who has led and saved and redeemed his people. And he is the one who came down in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, born under the law. And he lived without sin or taint. And this incarnation is also the most beautiful picture of God's nearness to us. Because what was the name that was prophesied that he would hold, that Isaiah prophesied, is that he would be named Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of this truth. He is God with us. He is with us, and he continues to be with us. Because as he promised his disciples in the night that he was betrayed, 
As they lamented the mere idea of him being gone, he said, it is for your benefit that I go, because I will send the helper. As we talked about this morning, the Holy Spirit of God that has been given, that not poured out in a a, a trickling sense as we see in the Old Testament, but poured out in full. The faucet has been opened wide, and the Holy Spirit has been given to every single one of his people and his children. He is near. And when the psalmist here, Asaph, says that your wondrous works declare that your name is near. Now when we consider the name of God as it's used in the scriptures, his names reveal who he is. Some character of who God is, and we come to know our God and who He is by the names that He chooses to reveal Himself. You see, His names are not just simply titles or a way that we can address Him, but they actually summarize His very character and who He is. So when Asaph here writes that these wondrous works declare that your name is near, what he is saying is these wondrous works declare that you yourself, O God, are near to us. Your name and all that you are, you are near to your people. And this is where the psalm starts. This is the foundation. This is the setting. This is the truth that you and I need to tell ourselves repeatedly over and over and over again, day after day after day, especially when we are in the trenches, in the valleys of life, in the darkness that we experience Because that is when we need this truth most of all. We need to digest it while life is in the the peaks, so to speak. And we need to understand it and put it in our hearts so that when times become dark and tough, we can rely on this truth that despite what may be happening or what we may do, God does not abandon his people. That is a promise that he gave Before he ascended on high. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, this is the wonderful truth that this psalm begins with. It's the nearness of God. He is close at hand. He is not far off and aloof. He is not on some distant horizon, uncertain of what is going on in the here and now. He knows exactly because he himself has brought what is happening in your life to you. And he does not abandon you in it, but is with you. This is why we are called to give thanks to the opening of this psalm for the nearness of God that he has revealed in his wondrous works. Now, as we consider the wondrous works of God, we, we jump right in in verses 2 through 8, speaking of a wondrous work of God that in many ways is yet to come. We can look at his creation, we can look at his redemption as acts that have taken place. But what these verses call us to are the wondrous works of God in something that is yet to be, and that is God's work of judgment at his appointed time. And so we see in these verses, this is God speaking, 
When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. Salah. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully. And to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. Now as we consider these verses and the judgment of God, we see his, first of all, his declaration that he is sovereign over all things. We see in verse 2, when I choose the proper time. God is the one who has set the time. He knows the day. And he will judge here as he says and declares he will judge uprightly. But not only is that day of judgment to come something that God himself has set as the proper time, but it also refers to the things that we experience in this life and the various blessings and, and uh, joyous, exuberant uh, things that we experience. These things are set by him in their appropriate time. But then also those hard and difficult things that we experience are also set according to his time for the appropriate season. Now, in these verses, we also see that this sovereignty of God that is displayed here already give us comfort. And he displays his sovereignty really in three ways. First of all, we see here that it's his uh, sustaining hand, even in tumultuous times we can see his sovereignty. We see this in verse 3. The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. Here in judgment, as the context gives us, the earth melts away as God descends in judgment. But this language of I set up its pillars firmly, there is also mixed with that a stability that is seen. Now we can look at this in a couple of ways. One, the first half of verse 3, really speaking to all of those who are in rejection of God, that in his day of judgment, the earth and all of its inhabitants are dissolved. Yet at the same time in this day of judgment, he is also holding his people and giving them strength and stability. One of the things that we can learn from this in our own day-to-day life is that it is God who gives us strength and stability in the hard and the difficult things that come into our lives. Even in tumultuous times, God is the one we are to go to. God is the one we are to rest in and go for strength. We also... See here that God ordains rulers. He says in verses 6 and following, For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. Now as we consider God putting down one and exalting another, what does this mean? But it refers to the very nations of the earth. The very powers of the earth in the various nations and states throughout the globe. 
We're coming up on a political season. Arguably one of the worst times in America. But as we consider this political season, God is the one who will set up and establish who will be in power. God is the one who will set up and establish what nation rises and what nation falls. God is the one who sets up and establishes who is victorious over one and who is uh, uh, beaten by another. These things don't happen by the strength of military or the might and power of what kind of great toys each nation has or the wisdom of their counsel. But it is God who directs. It is God who turns. It is God who orchestrates. It is God who establishes which nation rises and which nation falls. And they would be held to account. He has told those who boast not to boast. He has told the wicked not to lift up their horns, not to uh, be haughty and proud and arrogant. And we see here then in verse 8, this is another way that we see God's sovereignty in these verses, and that is his mixing and pouring of his wrath in judgment. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red, it is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. First of all, as we consider this picture of a, of a cup with potent and mixed wine. You know, one of the ways that wine is used in the Bible, in addition to making the heart glad in, in some scripture passages, it is also used as the picture of God's judgment. That nations that drink it down to the dregs, that drink it in excess, will be drunk, so to speak, on the judgment of God. It is his potent cup to destroy, to bring to ruin, in just and righteous judgment. But as we consider the cup that's prepared, who is the one that will drink it? Is it the nations of the earth that are spoken of here? Is it the rulers of the earth that are spoken of? But no, Asaph tells us that surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drink and drink down, drain and drink down. Now, kids, you may not be familiar with that term, dregs. <clears throat> it's something that's in uh, uh, a cup. Sometimes wine might have little bits of the grape still kind of in the bottom, and it's, those are the dregs. Or, or if you've had your dad's coffee or your mom's coffee, and you drink down in the mug, there might be some grounds in the bottle, the bottom, and you're, you're drinking it down to the very dregs. You're, it's a picture of drinking every little bit that's in the cup and contained in the cup. So who is the one here that will drink this cup down to the very dregs? It's all the wicked of the earth. All the wicked of the earth. From the greatest to the least. Every single wicked person will drink this cup to its very dregs. There is no one who will escape. There is no one who will get a pass. If we stand 
before God on our own. We are counted in that category of the wicked. It doesn't matter how many good works we might do. A holy and righteous God demands perfection to be in his presence. And he rightly demands perfection because he is perfect. He is holy. He is without sin, without taint. And he requires justly perfect obedience. And we cannot give it. There aren't enough good works that we can do to outweigh our sinful natures. There is not enough good that we can do to say, God, I've done enough. But there is one who lived perfectly. There is one who never sinned in any thought, word, or deed in his entire existence. There is one who is without taint, without stain, without blemish, that perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, He stood in the place of the wicked on the cross, and He drank this cup to its very dregs, to its very bottom. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you will not stand before God in your unrighteousness as a wicked person before Him on the day of judgment and so then be made to drink this cup of wrath. But instead, if by God's grace you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus has taken that cup and He has drunk it for you. Every last drop. So that you can stand before God in His righteousness. In His good works. In His merits. That are perfect. That are spotless and blameless. This is the gospel that's presented to us here in this zone. That if we stand before God on our own works, then we will be made to drink this cup of wrath that He has prepared for all the wicked. But if we believe by His grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, if we have faith in Him and trust in Him and look to not our own works, but to His works and who He is and what He has done for us, then instead of giving us this cup of His wrath, He will instead say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest prepared for for you. We can give God thanks for this redemption, this salvation, this time. It will be a terrible day of judgment, but then that we in Christ can stand and be counted as his own. Lastly, the final point, verses 9 to 10. God exalts those near to him. Again, this This psalm began by praising God for his wondrous works that declare his nearness, his works of creation, redemption, and his coming wondrous work of judgment that all declare that God is a God who is near. He is not a God who is far off and unaware. Now as the wicked here, as we've just looked at, will be drinking the wrath of God, Here in verse 9 is the opposite view. 
but I declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. It is a declaration that if we are in Christ, we are not in that category of the wicked who will take the judgment of God, but instead we will be brought into his glorious presence, and there in that presence we will declare forever and we will sing praises forever to the God of Jacob. And when God uses that that phrase, God of Jacob, we have the right and authority because Jesus Christ himself does this. To that title, God of Jacob, isn't just a reminder that, yeah, Jacob believed in this God. But how does Jesus confront the Sadducees who said, there are no angels, there are no miracles, there is no afterlife? Well, Jesus said to them, in their scriptures, the ones that they alone, that they would only look at, the Torah, God is called the God of Abraham the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus takes that name and he rightly applies it and he says, God is the God of the living. Implying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, long since dead in the grave and their bodies having rotted away, yet they are living. Their souls are glorified and alive in the presence of their Creator. And God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And so we have this title here that I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. I will live in his presence. He is the God of the living and those who trust in him. And then in this final summary in verse 10, all the horns of the wicked will also be cut off. The symbol of horns is a symbol of power and might. In the animal kingdom, animals battling and fighting against each other, using their horns against one another for dominance and position. When the scripture speaks of one's horn being raised, it is a symbol of asserting your power and your dominance over whatever else may be before you. God calls on humanity to not lift their horns, to not be boastful, but to be humble. Here we see that the horns, the boastful horns of the wicked will be cut off in that day of judgment. They will be humbled for all of eternity in the pangs of hell, suffering God's wrath forever. But the horns of the righteous will be exalted. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for you will inherit the earth. The meek the humble, the lowly. God will in that day raise up our horns because our horns are in Christ, in His victory. He is the source of our salvation. He is our salvation and our redemption. And it is in Him that we have glory and can boast. The horns of the wicked are cut down. They are cut off. They are brought to humble humiliation before him forever, but we will then be exalted in his presence and glorified forever. Brothers and sisters, you may be going through some difficult time in your life. There may be health, job, 
schooling, relationship, whatever it may be. You may be going through or maybe seeing on the horizon something coming. Hold fast to this truth that God is near. And you can understand and know full well that God is near by looking at the wondrous works that he has done because these wondrous works declare that he is near. He has created all things and he provides for his creation day after day after day. In his wondrous works of redemption, he has secured for us salvation in his presence forever, that we might be with him forever. From the greatest in the faith faith to the least in the faith, every single child of God will be in his glorious presence for all of eternity. But we also see in this psalm the stark warning of his wondrous work of just and righteous judgment that is yet to come. And in this way also he declares his nearness. Because a God who is aloof, a God who is far off, wouldn't bother judging the earth. In his very act of judgment in bringing the wicked to account, in bringing them low and cutting off their horns, he shows that he is intimately involved with his creation and with his people. And he will judge. And so the question that you and I have to ask ourselves is the question that every human being needs to ask themselves. Will we drink that cup on our own? That cup of wrath? Or has Jesus Christ taken it for us? If you stand apart from Christ, then you will be given that cup to drink for all of eternity. But if you are in Christ, know that Jesus has drunk it to the full. The price has been paid. And the reward is you come into his presence on his merits and are glorified in his presence forever. And so find comfort in the wonderful and wondrous works of God, for they declare his nearness. Amen. Our Lord, we do give you thanks that you are a God who is near and not a God who is far off. We thank you, Lord, that you see and you know and you understand the day in and day out lives of all of your people. And not just your people, but all of humanity. You fashion the hearts of men and you know each one. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who is near. And we thank you, Lord, for the wonderful works that you have done. May we consider them in the difficult times in life. And remember that you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. May you deliver us from these difficult times. And bring us to the bounteous good that you promise. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.